Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dalis Wilson, but he told me I could call him DW to the show. So welcome, DW. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming and I've listened to the show for a while now. So great to be here. Dalis is the Vice President of Sales and also Growth Marketing at GetAccept. GetAccept is what you would think of as soon as you start to work an opportunity and you work an opportunity to close, they've got all the elements that you'd need. They've got video, they've got contract management, all the interesting pieces. And if you want to learn more about them, obviously go to getaccept.com. Let's get started just to get to know you a little bit better. What is your favorite sales book of all time and what did you take away from it? Like a salesperson, I might give you two answers. I still like recently To Sell as Human by Daniel H. Pink, a great one. But my favorite book conceptually is Animal Farm for Sales. I think if you're working in a corporation, you should read that. And there's some good comments and parallels about how to navigate the ecosystem in a company or political system. I think it's really interesting. The original Animal Farm or is there an actual Animal Farm for Sales? No, the original, I think that, you know, aren't there so many parallels in Australia and we say, you know, dog eat dog kind of culture. I think what our job is as professionals is to build companies that are the opposite of that. And if we are someone choosing to work somewhere that we pick somewhere that is atypical to that kind of environment. When I was on your LinkedIn profile, learning a little bit about you, Uh, I noticed a little factoid in there that I'd love to start with because it's just super unusual, which says that you were working on the Ellen DeGeneres show, which is pretty awesome as both a guest and a production assistant. And then that then dawned on me and I saw that your background picture on LinkedIn is, I assume, a younger version of you talking to Ellen. So can can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? And I tell you what, Jeremy, I still wish I looked like that photo, but many years in software can take its toll eventually. But my brother and I were chosen from a singing contest, and I'd also at the time done a bit of YouTube work uh, in the early days of YouTube. But listeners, you can't find a lot of those videos now. I've hidden them as my career's grown. We were so fortunate and we thought we just won a competition and then we ended up going on the show and doing some segments with her and she also found out about my father who'd had a brain tumor and the Ellen Show and some Aussie companies stepped up to support my family. Dad, if you're listening, I hope you're feeling better all the time. You're a good role model and a really good seller too. He was a VP at HP back in the day. What were some of the key learnings you learned from your father about sales at an early age? He was very good at asking exploratory questions. And then a technique that one of my older bosses at a company called Trust Radius taught me, which is peeling back the onion when you ask those questions, but then you reframe those statements in a way that uncover new facts of information. And also uh, the person you're speaking with really uh, appreciates the fact that you're listening. I think my dad was an expert at that. I think, secondly, the work ethic was there. And probably everyone listening to this podcast has some kind of side hustle or they're doing another job on the side. And my dad was no exception. Not only was he doing that job, but he was coding and then he owned his own business on the side. And so I take inspiration from being a renaissance man or woman, you know, being able to 
manage many activities at once and succeed in them. Doing my research on you, I also saw that you you know, had some insanely popular content over the years on LinkedIn. Uh, in particular, you had an article that you wrote about how to answer the please sell me a pen. So I'd love to hear your guidance on, on sell me this pen. People go, oh, you shouldn't ask that question anymore. It's outdated. But at the same time, it's like asking someone, you know, tell me about the last couple of years of World War II. Sometimes you need to ask questions to make sure people know even what's popular in the industry. But I used to ask that question with sunglasses. So I used to have a pair of sunglasses on the table and I'd say, sell me these sunglasses. And most people talk about the features, you know, they're purple, they're Ray-Ban, you'd really like them. That's the most amateur way, isn't it? Then the second way, they talk more about the value. So they'd say, you know, do you like brand name sunglasses? Uh, have you felt the need to have sunglasses recently? Then the third way is this kind of solution selling where instead of asking those questions broadly, like I just mentioned, they're really trying to find uh, a pain that you have and solve for it. Uh, so, you know, do you find that your eyes hurt in the sun, right? Which everyone says yes to. But the fourth one, which I think is crazy and why the article became so popular is this notion of creating the pain. And I kind of can describe this in two ways. Imagine before Yelp, you know, restaurants didn't have to worry about paying to have an online profile uh, because there was no such thing. And the fact that they have no reviews as Yelp proliferated became a bad thing because having no reviews is almost as bad as negative reviews. So they kind of created the problem or created the pain and then they provide the solution for it which I find quite obscure. And even in our markets and software and other industries, even creating the category is somewhat creating the pain in some instances. Once you understand what the category is, you go, oh, I, I really need that. I, I shouldn't be doing that, these things the way I'm doing. So that fourth point around creating the pain made people go up in arms because they disagreed with the notion. But in theory, if you think about a lot of large businesses, often they do that practice, don't they? Yeah. I mean, besides Yelp, what's another example? Or even at GetAccept, how do you create pain? I still don't think we've nailed that. I think there's enough pain that we solve already in the market that we don't need to create it. For us, people have too many software tools. They're spending too much money. They also find that deals get stuck in kind of this valley of death where you've been communicating and then nothing happens. So we've built a range of different things to reactivate people in that area. So I think for us here, it's creating awareness of the current pains and we don't have to invest a lot in creating this new pain. Another really good example is these kind of health products that come out, different types of vitamins. You know, you look at the acai berries of the world, right? And if you weren't eating acai berries, you weren't getting antioxidants, which became the theme, which then meant that you had more of a chance of cancer. All of that created from one little berry is a pretty amazing movement, right? So a lot of these health foods are good examples where they kind of create pains, but then solve them through the provision of that food or product. 
So I find the whole thing very interesting for sales and the theory of sales. On the Sell Me a Pen thing, I, I recently watched The Wolf of Wall Street. It was very much like that. It was like uh, he was creating need in that. That movie came out, I think, after your article. So you know, maybe he recreated some of his own history in that film. As much as that gentleman's done some things that a little bit, uh, I don't know him, nor have I really dived into the story, but some of those things are a little on the edge uh, with his record. But I think the way he sold is very interesting. It's particularly efficacious in a B2C mindset as well. Not a lot of us talk about the difference selling B2C versus selling B2B. And my career was built on B2C first, and then I transitioned into B2B. A lot of those techniques work a lot more on the masses, but when you have highly educated people that are analytical, like in the B2B market, it can be very hard to use those techniques to get anywhere. In fact, they, you know, people, when they recognize you're using those techniques, often think less of you, and then you're in a worse position. Yeah, I think the the whole technique thing is is icky. I will say, I think there's a lot of negative emotion, which is probably justified towards Jordan Belfort. But his book, The Way of the Wolf, uh, as I read, and as I do almost all sales books, and I actually thought it was quite a good book. I think it's one of these books that no one wants to admit that they like it. And the reason I know this is because I have a blog, and the blog, I don't really blog. What I do is I summarize the books I read, and week in, week out, since I published my summary of The Way of the Wolf, that's the number one read book summary. I think that's amazing too that you do that. And I think I wrote earlier this year about if you're reading one book a month, I mean, that's a benchmark for success. I think a lot of people can't even fit one book in a year. If you can't read that or you're struggling, I think reading summaries of books like your blog posts are a really good way to go about it. On the book thing, you know, there have been a lot of posts that I've been reading on LinkedIn about people humble bragging about the 50 books that they read last year. Yeah. But I was talking to somebody the other day and he had a really good point. And he said he stole it from someone else too. But his point was, yeah, his goal for 2020 is not to read 50 books, which I think he had. I think he got to 48 books, this, this person I was talking to. But he said, my goal is to read 10 deeply, sort of your book a month thing, and then revisit them to make sure that the lessons that are contained in those books really, really sink in. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. I don't think I can get to the 50 mark as much as I'd want to. But yeah, I really promote reading. I think I often say that I was my smarter self around 12 years old because you know I had a bit of a tough time in school and I used to live in the library. Yeah. I think at that time I was closer to 70 books a year and I was you know, I feel like I knew a lot more about world history and other things than I do now, that's for sure. The knowledge, though, I think helps, right? Even if it's not sales-related books, even if you're reading fiction, I think that knowledge of how humans interact with, with each other and with the world, which is so much a part of fiction, is so relevant. It is relevant. And I mean, even now, I felt that going into conversations with Americans, like I've done for the last four years living here, I felt that particularly in my first year, I knew nothing about football, nothing about your history, nothing about many things. So I said, why don't I read the thickest book I can from about American history from A to, we say Z, you guys say Z. And it's been amazing just the points it's elucidated about the culture. And I feel so much better going into conversations 
knowing about Gettysburg, for instance, and the two armies and what their values were, you know, you never know when that stuff is going to help. And people actually value when you seem a little bit more educated than the rest. I don't think it works against you ever. In Australia too, we have US history as a subject in high school, which is quite interesting. Well, we don't have Australian history as a subject to, to, to my knowledge. Not yet, and, but I'm promoting uh, sales to be a subject at university first. That's a long time pursuit. That's probably first before Australian history. They, they exist in places. I actually was at a, a Modern Sales Pros event last night, and I was chatting with a woman who runs the enterprise sales team over at Betch Recruiting. I don't know how this came up, but she mentioned she graduated from Northeastern University, which is a school up in Boston. And they have a sales program there that they have to do two or three six-month internships. And so she had just incredible experiences, both in sales and like marketing and marketing operations. So they, they do exist. There's not a lot of them, but they do exist. Just like we've taken a lot of things that were old and rebranded them new, sales probably needs a rebrand at some point to attract more talent to it. I think when you speak to young people and you go, you know, study sales or do you want a career in sales, a lot of them aren't initially attracted. But if you look at something like consulting, for instance, which a lot of the top tier graduates got to do, consulting is pretty much sales for the most part. Once the partners made the sale, then the interns come in and do all the hard work. So I think that maybe we need to reinvent the profession a little bit with the terminology and we'd probably get the uptake and interest. What should we call it instead of sales? I guess we can call it revenue, right? <laughs> if everyone's calling themselves a chief revenue officer, I guess it could be revenue programs. I don't know. If you ask me, sometimes we should call it magic because you meet those people and they defy all the different kind of things that you've learned or been taught, but they get the job done every time. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like economic sales. I think we try to understand it as a science, but sometimes they're very significant outliers. That's why I, I'm still here because I'm interested in why. I'm going to tie this back, the, the theme of magic back to a previous thread, which is you said you cut your teeth in B2C sales before moving into B2B. And there's a lot of magic in B2C. What were some of the lessons that you, you learned there that you took over into the B2B world? I worked at the Australian equivalent of Best Buy, I think would be the best equivalent. And then I got that job because they didn't want to hire me. I was too young. And I said, I'll work commission only, which I knew from my dad what commission meant back at 17. And um, within two months, I was number five nationally amongst, I think, 1,100 salespeople. So they came to interview me and figure out what the hell this kid was doing that the other people weren't. Then I kept in this B2C world. And one of them was I built the Australian equivalent of Angie's List and Thumbtack as one of the founding members. So we were selling to homeowners. And I think both that experience at the Best Buy and when we scaled that company taught me the importance of making your conversation relevant and personalized as fast as possible. So often when we cold call, we get some of these advices around introducing yourself, introducing the company, going through some of the formalities. Really, our teams were always the most successful and in person when we were able to create that bond within the first sentence or the second sentence. So a good example would be like, you know, hey, it's Dale calling from X. 
before I get started, did you know I actually lived down the road from you two years ago? And in Australia, those kind of statements which diffused a lot of tension through finding a personal anecdote, I took into the B2B world because when you meet people, you often find that even very senior people are actually quite insular and there's a lot more introverts than extroverts in senior management. So trying to create that initial chemistry is very hard. Very much to your point, one of our sales folks had me chat with peer exec at a company he's attempting to sell to today. And this exec and I probably spent more time talking about our experiences in our early careers as electrical engineers than we even did about the deal. And like, yes, the the relationship is only one facet, right? You need to have elements of, I always say, and, right? Relationship selling and consultative selling and challenger selling. It's it's not an or. So was that your secret uh, of being you know, in the in the top five of 1,100 salespeople was being very, very consistent on rapport building? Well, there's three elements. The first is if you want to win, be in the office early and get your day planned, which led into the second one, which I went around with a notepad and every item in the store, there were thousands of items. I cataloged and found the gross profit on each of them and created my own bundles so that when I spoke to customers, I knew what were the best items, but what also had the best margin. Uh, And so that was a strategy that they deployed nationally after we chatted and they wanted me to fly around teaching everyone how to sell, but I wanted to go to Japan to learn Japanese. So I did that instead. And then I think the third tenant was when you have sold to people before, grab their contact details. They didn't do that at a place like Best Buy. It's too transactional. But I grabbed all the details of all these people and then created an email newsletter, which I knew how to do. This is 2009, so still earlier days, but not impossible then. Yeah, those people became my base book of business. They'd bring their families, they'd bring their friends, they'd come back for other things. So no one else had people coming to see them in the store, right? You know, it taught me a lot about maintaining relationships for multiple years. You know, it's funny, we were talking earlier about salespeople getting a bad reputation and people not wanting to go into sales. And it's so classically coming from the B2C world, you know, electronic salespeople, but you had managed to break the mold there. Uh, Car salespeople too. My car sales experiences over the course of the past few years have in general been very positive because they know about the reviews and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I had to buy a, a used car for one of my kids recently. And I had the worst sales experience I have ever had. The person who actually sold me the car was really just trying to, you know, <laughs> milk his customers for anything he could possibly get. It was just a really unpleasant experience. I draw the analogy often, you know, if you choose to work in hell, but you're an angel, often you get all the business. You know, if you're in car sales, but you do it really, really well. And I think you're well-read uh, man and many of the listeners are well-read people. There's a, a gentleman who goes around on the circuit who apparently sold the most cars in America. And he said he came from a tough dealership. He built this whole thing through what I was talking about by having this newsletter and this network of people. Uh, and then he also would give a percentage of his commission to people when they referred, which are all basic SaaS principles, really, that we use today. 
So it's interesting. If you are the best, it doesn't matter if you're in a tough world. Generally, you can rise above it. And sometimes that's a good thing because everyone wants to work with you because you look different. I always like to have guests let people know how best to get in touch with them. So how should people learn about you? <laughs> oh, definitely. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me by just putting in D-A-I-L-I-U-S, Dalis Wilson. I also think that my first name dot last name at getaccept.com. Uh, I always answer those emails once a week. So feel free to shoot something through. And if I may, you know, to end, I think if you're on your sales journey and you're earlier on, it's such a great skill set to build. And you're already ahead of everyone else by just listening to this podcast. And make sure that you reach out to guests and try and develop a network of mentors to help you because that's what has helped me in my career and what I need to do more of now because I need more senior mentors as this company grows. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.